Church of History. <laughs> Here's Felix Padel to take us back, back, back. This morning we have a uh, the story of a seven-minute black-and-white film shot nearly a century ago in the eastern Washington community of Chihuahua, which has been tucked away for some strange reason in an archive in South Carolina for 50 years. And you tracked down the story behind this film, including Washington's forgotten role in providing a vital material for both world wars? Yeah, you know, and that theme music was from Lowell Thomas Remembers. That's a public TV show from the late 70s. We'll talk about how that fits into the story in a moment. Now, I know about Boeing planes from Seattle and ships built in Houghton for World War II. I know about the spruce forests of the Olympic Peninsula providing lumber for aircraft in World War I, but I'd never heard of magnesite before. Magnesite was an important ingredient in American arms production in both of those wars, and most of it, turns out, came from the Evergreen State. Now, magnesite is magnesium carbonate. It was critical to the steel milling process. Heat-proof bricks made from magnesite lined all the big forges and steel plants throughout most of the 20th century. So I saw this old film the other day posted online from the University of South Carolina, Shot in 1925 by a Fox Movie Tone news photographer based in Seattle named Eric Mayel. I have it posted on my Facebook page. We'll have it later at My Northwest. What it shows is a sprawling mining and refining operation for magnesite in the town of Chihuahua. It's about 45 miles north of Spokane or so on the way to Colville. Now, in the film, we see dynamiting at a quarry, horse-drawn sleds full of ore, and one of the coolest parts is this overhead tram. It carried the raw ore for more than five miles from the quarry to the processing plant. It looks like a ski lift. It's actually made by the same company that made ski lifts. The photographer actually rides in one of the tram buckets the entire five miles. You see a shadow. It almost looks like the sky ride from the World's wow. Fair. It's an amazing piece of film. Now, I'd heard of Chihuahua, and I'd uh, heard of, never heard of the Northwest Magnesite Company, so I made some calls to the museum over there. They connected me with lifelong Chihuahua resident Gino Ludwig. He's a retired school teacher in his 70s. We used to get all of our uh, magnesite here in the United States from Austria. When the First World War started, Austria, of course, cut off their supply of magnesite to the United States because we were on different sides of the war. So the nationwide hunt went on to find magnesite, and they found it uh, about seven miles southwest of Chihuahua. So when the, uh, World War I began, we lost access, and they found this at a, in Chihuahua at a place called Finch Quarry. They knew it was there because magnesite's related to marble. There'd been a marble quarry there for years. Now, Gino Ludwig explained the whole complex process to me where the ore comes in on the tram and gets busted up and washed, then goes to these gigantic cylindrical kilns that are fired with coal. It reaches a crazy high temperature to go through a purification process called dead burning. The final product is sort of a pellet that would get shipped by train to Pittsburgh, where they turn it into those special bricks. Now, Gino knows all about this because he has a personal connection to the magnesite plant. My dad was a burner, which means that he ran the kilns. When I went to visit him. Uh, you, can't, you could not look inside the kiln, otherwise it would blind you. You had to use this real thick kind of a, oh, kind of a bluish-purple glass to look through. And when you looked in there, you could, just, you could see how hot it was. And how hot it was was about 3,200 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, this is really hot. It's purifying this ore, right? Yeah. Now, the magnesite plant made Chihuahua boom in the 20s and again during World War II when as many as 800 people worked there around the clock. Firing up those kilns was a big process, so they just kept them going all the time. 
each of the seven or eight kilns produce something like 50 tons of magnesite per day. I mean, this is a huge operation. The technology changed, though, of course, and by the late 1960s, the plant was sold to a company in Texas. The workforce dwindled to fewer than 200. Now, Gino's dad, Ray Ludwig, was still working there in March 1968. When the bad news came, the plant would shut down that August. So we really had a, a fairly decent population, depending on, on, on the plant and how many how many workers were, were actually actively working. And then suddenly, when, when the plant shut down uh, and people had to leave, put a stress on everything because... You know, the businesses weren't making as much money. The school district uh, didn't have as many kids. Um, so it was it was it was a, a, an economic disaster. Now, Gino Ludwig says Chuila did bounce back in the 70s. Now, the museum people over there and Gino hadn't ever heard about this 1925 film before. So I sent Gino a link and then I gave him another call. I, I never I'd never seen it before. But, uh, you know, it, it pretty well uh, showed you the description of the what I was talking about, the buckets and the tram lines and the and how the, the the ore was mined and all that other kind of stuff. Now, as to why that film was preserved at the University of South Carolina, the archivist there is a guy named Benjamin Singleton. He says that back in 1980, Fox Corporation donated something like 16 million feet of newsreel footage that shot between 1919 and the 40s. Now, Singleton's not sure, but he thinks it's all because of that public TV show, Lowell Thomas Remembers, Lowell which Thomas was Remembers. produced there in Columbia, South Carolina in the 1970s. And in Lowell Thomas, the famous Fox News voice he sits on a desk and he says i remember you know Lindbergh, blah 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 <laughs> that show was made here at the pbs station which is the, one of the larger pbs stations so it was the biggest single licensor of fox news footage and i i, I mean there's something got to have been something there in that way. Now, Lowell Thomas is a little bit even before my time, Dave, so I grabbed a sample so we can all listen to see if he is as low energy as Ben Singleton kind of portrays him. Hello, everybody. This is Lowell Thomas again, remembering with you another memorable year in the history of aviation. A year of peace, but a year of excitement in the air. <laughs> the year 1947. Ooh. So, yeah, well, he was not exactly Mr. Excitement, was no. Lowell Thomas. Now, whatever the reason for the donation, Benjamin Singleton agreed with me when I said that collections like what he has there made it possible for guys like Ken Burns to reinvigorate the whole field of historic documentaries. And, boy, he sure did agree with me. That's right. He, he certainly owes me. You, you can quote me. He's, he's nice, though. Yeah, so Ken Burns has used this archive in South Carolina extensively. Now, some of the buildings from the plant are still standing there south of Chihuahua. There's a giant smokestack, but the old tram, that really cool thing, that's completely gone. And we'll have the film. It's on my Facebook page now, but we'll have it at My Northwest a little bit later on. Amazing piece of Northwest history. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's worth bringing that tram back if it's for a tourist attraction. Wouldn't if, that be uh, cool? If nothing else. Yeah. Plus, I want to thank you. I now know more about steel than I ever thought I would. Yeah, magnesite. Who knew? Who knew? Felix Spinell, resident historian, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. We got an update on the United Auto Workers strike. GM just disclosed their profits are in trouble. And it's leading the company to pull back on its EV program. So I called up WWJ Radio's Jeff Gilbert, who's in Detroit, and told me that this EV issue is far from a new development. Actually, this has been brewing since long before the auto strike. And, uh, you know, the auto strike is one little pebble 
that that has been thrown in the brook with a lot of boulders. So the, the big issue with the EVs for GM is it's hard to make them affordable, and they're slowing everything down to try to find other ways to make them more affordable. As the market grows and there's more competition, and as people have had a tough time cutting into Tesla's huge market share. So all of that has a lot more to do with this than the auto strike. But the auto strike is part of it. I see. Well, then, does the strike give GM sort of a convenient excuse to do what it was already planning to do then and pull back? I don't think it so much gives him an excuse, but it lets GM say to the UAW, hey, look, our main message to you has been we're profitable now, but we're facing a future where we have to make a lot of EVs, and EVs are not nearly as profitable as the gasoline pickup trucks and big SUVs that we make a lot of our money on right now. So this lets them send a message to the UAW, but it, it really isn't because of the strike. Yeah. All right, so then uh, what's next here? That is the most interesting thing about covering the auto industry. We can't really tell you what's next. But everybody in the industry is slowing down a little bit on EVs because the bottom line is you've got to make money on these vehicles. And so far, they are profitable for Tesla, which doesn't have huge legacy costs. But for companies like GM and Ford that make most of their money off of SUVs, they haven't cracked the code yet. Hmm. Is there any chance the GM would just go back to, uh, we're just going to stick with uh, internal combustion engines. This whole EV thing uh, was one step too far. Well, if you recall GM when they announced they were going all EV by 2035, it was we aspire to be all EV by 2035, but we can only do it if conditions are right. So they gave themselves a lot of wiggle room. And, yeah, essentially that's what they're doing now is saying, look, we're still making profits off of these big pickups and big SUVs, and we're going to make them as long as we can sell them. CBS's Jeff Kilbert at WWJ in Detroit. Jeff, thank you. Thank you, Dave. Nurses have voted to go on strike at Providence Medical Center in Everett unless there's an agreement by the end of the month to do something about salaries and staff shortages. And now there's a CDC report which shows they're not alone. Healthcare workers nationwide are near the breaking point. CBS's Alexander Tin got a look at that CDC report. The CDC was looking at one main question, which is everyone, multiple health professions, as well as professions outside of the health industry have reported essentially increases in all these issues relating to both mental health problems as well as burnout, like you mentioned. Their question was, is the issue worse compared to other professions in the healthcare industry? And what they found is that indeed it was worse. They found that in the healthcare industry, not only was there a larger increase in workers reporting things like burnout, but also an increase in the kind of underlying drivers that are likely causing that. For example, there was a more than doubling in the number of workers in the healthcare industry reporting harassment from either patients or coworkers. So this is not just a, uh, a, a COVID phenomenon. This is something that has gotten worse over the years. Right. And again, to be clear, the timeline they were looking at was 2018 to 2022. So what they found in the survey was that those levels of reported issues were higher among healthcare workers even before the COVID-19 pandemic, but then they got worse during the COVID-19 pandemic. During a media briefing yesterday, CDC officials essentially called it a crisis that got even worse during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, when you, when you talk about uh, harassment, this is coming from uh, fellow employees or just uh, unhappy patients? 
Both. You know, they the question was asked pretty broadly. Were you experiencing harassment on the job, either from patients or coworkers? And again, that's where you saw that more than doubling of reports. Now, we know from separate studies that have been conducted, separate surveys that have been done, that there have been increases of harassment and threats of violence in the healthcare industry from patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. But that wasn't specifically what they were looking at in this study. The study also found that that nurses were essentially being overworked. Isn't that right? Right. You know, they looked at this at a couple different ways. The main question that they asked was essentially burnout, right? And in that survey, they found that nearly half of healthcare workers, that includes nurses as well as clinicians, are now reporting that they are essentially feeling burned out very often or often on the job. But separately, they asked other more specific questions. They asked questions about, you know, are there enough staff to meet the needs on the job that also increased more complaints about there not being enough staff in the healthcare industry compared to outside. Now, we also know that that healthcare providers have been trying to cut costs because, of course, the cost of healthcare just seems to be going uh, up and up and up. I'm sure they're under pressure from uh, insurance, uh, insurance companies and uh, and others. Is, is that part of what's behind this? That that is part of it, the economics of this healthcare industry. But at the same time, what you heard CDC officials say yesterday is that the results of this burnout, which is essentially turnover, you know, staff and clinicians and nurses looking for new jobs, switching jobs as a result of feeling all of this burnout. That is something that can, in the long term, actually cost more to healthcare industry executives. You know, their bottom line is directly affected by all this staff turnover, which in the survey looks to be higher in the healthcare industry compared to other industries. So their bottom line plea was essentially for the healthcare industry, you will save more money now by taking steps to address this. So in in the long term, of course, in the short term, we're, we're seeing more strikes. But in the long term, does this mean that, uh, that people are just going to get out of the healthcare industry and do something else? It's possible. And again, you know, they didn't specifically look at this question in the survey. The survey was specifically asking just, are you going to be looking for a new job? They didn't ask what that new job will be. But we also heard at yesterday's briefing with CDC officials that at least anecdotally in preparing a new, you know, essentially PR campaign they're planning on releasing to urge healthcare systems to take steps to address this, that anecdotally from healthcare workers, they have heard an increase in the number of workers who are saying they are either considering leaving the profession or substantially changing their role within the profession. CBS correspondent Alexander Tin. Alex, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Another vote being held in Washington, D.C. today to finally elect a Speaker of the House, we hope. Let's go to CBS congressional correspondent Scott McFarland. Uh, First of all, Tom Emmer, why did he suddenly drop out of the race? Well, he had fellow Republicans who said they didn't like his vote to certify the election of Joe Biden on January 7th, 2021. And then Donald Trump posted a social media post calling Tom Emmer a rhino, Republican in name only. That confluence of events, Dave, knocked him from nominee of to be House Speaker to canceled and resigned candidate in four hours. Wow. That's power. That is power. All right. So uh, it also, go ahead. So it also underscores this issue of election denialism as the mandate of the next House Speaker. I mean, over the last 24 hours, Dave, we just had a referendum on election denialism and election denialism won, which gives the next House Speaker a requirement 
to continue denying the election and potentially cause trouble January 6, 2025. Wow. All right, so the uh, new top candidate is Representative Mike Johnson. So his name uh, now is, is this is the consensus candidate. And uh, do we know what is, and he's an election denier too, so he qualifies? He hits a real sweet spot here for a couple of reasons, Dave. First of all, yes, indeed. He not only voted to decertify the election in 2020, but he also um, was part of the galvanizing force to get members of Congress to support Texas's lawsuit trying to overturn the 2020 election results and was part of the Trump impeachment defense team. But he hits a sweet spot because he checks that box. He has Trump support. He has the conservative support. But he's also such an unknown. He doesn't necessarily cause trouble for the moderates. For those who are in districts that President Biden won in 2020, because their constituents are like, who in the world is Mike Johnson? And let me tell you, don't Google it. Don't. Trust me. Um, and <laughs> this is, puts him in a pretty nice little middle ground where he's going to coast today. Okay. I just look at his picture. He, he somewhat resembles Stephen Colbert. Does that help him or hurt him? One of my colleagues called him an election denier with a smile. Somebody <laughs> who has a he's a talk he's a radio talk show host, and we know uh-huh. that's one of the great jobs in America. And he singularly has differentiated himself as a good communicator, a good spokesperson for his party. But he's so unknown, he doesn't have you know a, a gang of enemies or rivals. And I think that's playing to his favor today. Yeah, um, I'm I'm just curious. So what what proof does he? offer to uh, back up the claim that the election was stolen? Well, let's let's unpack that question a little bit, because that was one of the first questions he was asked during an impromptu press conference here late last night. And with Republicans behind him and on the side of him, they booed the questioner, the reporter, mm-hmm. heckled her and declined to answer. Um, that should give you a sense of how they like to answer for election denialism in the Republican conference at this moment. They booed, interrupted, and heckled the reporter who asked the question. I see. So it's an article um, of religious faith know. at this point. I think that's right. I think it's also just it, it's now a box you must check to be in Republican leadership because Tom Emmer was on a fast track yesterday. The Minnesota congressman, the Republican whip, who knows the rank and file quite well, has a leadership infrastructure, can raise money. He was coasting until that issue was raised. And then four hours later, he had to bail on the race and return to his work as House Republican whip. Wow. So where does he stand on keeping the government open? He didn't take policy questions either. So it's a, that's a bit of a mystery. Though I, I would be shocked if he didn't have to answer that question to his colleagues before securing their support. Um, you know, one of the things that he and, and some of the other House Freedom Caucus and conservative members have said is you know, if, we, if we cut a temporary deal, we can do so in a way that requires – mandatory cuts come January 1st and some interpretation of the deal cut with President Biden to avert the debt ceiling crisis earlier this year. And they may try to thread a needle to keep the government open, but he's got limited time to do that. I mean, he's only got a few weeks. And by the way, he has no experience in leading the U.S. House. He's a very low-ranking member of House Hmm. leadership, and he doesn't have any practice or history of raising money. And the next House Speaker's got to be a cash um, machine. He's going to have to raise millions of dollars. So, so do we know what the what the vote was among Republicans in their in their conference for him? We do. Uh, he won a, a narrow majority, as the previous three nominees did. Um, the second place finisher was other. 
uh, otherwise known as none of the above. But the others seem to have come around, um, and he has gotten um, some pretty unbridled support from the people who are dissenting on Jim Jordan or dissenting mm-hmm. on Kevin McCarthy or dissenting on Steve Scalise. I, I can't find anybody who has vocalized opposition to Mike Johnson among the Republicans today, and that's a very good sign for him because yeah. a vote could happen as early as 9 a.m. or 9.30 a.m. today. Okay, so the Matt Gates group is happy with the election denialism, but what about the the moderates who are saying we've got to we've got to get past uh, we, we've got to break the Trump spell? Um, they don't say that in so many words. I think, I think the, the moderates try to have their cake and eat it too. They don't they, they distance themselves from Trump, but they don't diss Trump. Mm-hmm. And I think they're going to try to to skate by on this because their constituents quite simply don't know who Mike Johnson is, and there's not the time and space for their constituents to be galvanized in opposition of Mike Johnson. I think speed is of the essence. Mike Johnson has the pathway today. I think they're going to have that vote as soon as they can this afternoon. Hmm. CBS's Scott McFarland. Scott, thank you. Thanks, Dave. Your daily dose of kindness now brought to you by Robert W. Baird. For Anita Green, Thursday, September 21st is a day she'll never forget. I'm just overexcited. I don't know what to think. So many emotions one at one time. Just a few minutes before those heartfelt words came the surprise of a lifetime. Richard Mack with Wheels for Work tells Fox affiliate WJBK-TV. We heard your story, Miss Green. And today, we are giving you a car. Oh, my God. Can you hear that? Anita Green is a single mom who walks to work back and forth every day. And you walk in the middle of the night, coming back from work. You finish. What time do you finish work? I get off of work at 1130. At night. I don't make it home until like 12.30 Anita's employer, Detroit Rescue Mission, teamed up with Wheels for Work to get her the car. Her resilience, her determination are remarkable, they say. And how you decided, this is not my reality. You decided that I'm going to make a better life for myself, for my children. And with a large donation from Amazon, they were able to make this happen. Mama car? Yes, this is mommy car. Oh my goodness, I love it. Look, hi. Start her up. Start it up. <laughs> Thank you so much, you guys. This really means a lot. Wow. It's amazing, too, how many stories we've done like this yes, for the Daily Dose. Kind of where somebody doesn't have a car, their car broke down, didn't have money for repairs, but they just made it work, right? They got to work, they got to school, whatever it is. And there's organizations like this that help them out. Yeah. Glad that car started when they turned the key, by the way. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> And now, from the Jiren Ursula Show, here is Ursula Roy team. Good morning. We have another social media lawsuit. 42 states, including ours, suing Meta because of the damage that, I guess, Instagram and Facebook can do uh, to teenagers. So where do you come down to this? Is this the right approach? I would normally say, hey, you know, why aren't parents taking, you know, care and why isn't it the responsibility of the parents and the, and, and, and the kids who are getting on social media? But when you look and when you hear what Facebook or the, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram actually has admitted 
to doing to try to hook our kids onto social media, I'm all for this lawsuit. Uh, specifically, um, knowing that more than half of U.S. teens spend at least four hours a day on social media, uh, Facebook and Instagram have admitted that they uh, knew that uh, these things that they are doing could actually cause teenagers, especially teen girls, uh, harm. One internal study said that uh, 13.5% of teen girls said that Instagram makes them think of suicide, uh, and uh, 17% say it makes their eating disorders worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, knowing all that, yet Meta, the company that owns Facebook mm-hmm. and Instagram, continued because they're hooking them really early. So they know that they actually intentionally put these things in there that make you want to scroll endlessly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for me, I'm like, you know what? You know what speaks? Money. And Facebook, or I, I want—I have a hard time calling it Meta. I do too. It's yeah, like, just oh. say Facebook. Okay, yeah. Fa- so fa- it's fine. <laughs> just like that. It's like trying X, to call Google Alphabet, known as Twitter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, they have, uh, you know, tons and tons and tons of money. So the only thing that's going to really make them make changes would be hitting them with a lawsuit that's going to cost them tons and tons and tons of money. It reminds me of the lawsuits against Big Tobacco. Exactly. That when it finally came to light that these companies knew what they were putting in there were harmful and addictive, the lawsuit was ironclad. And we are still battling that today. And it it reminds me of the same thing. I know it's not a substance. I know it's not the usual addiction that we're used to. But think about gambling addiction. Think about sex addiction. Think about addictions that are external. Uh, Facebook, social media, your phones, those are external addictions, but just as valid as an alcohol or drug addiction. Addiction is addiction is addiction. And they know that it's harming children. Yeah, it's is the also, lawsuit going to stop it, though? People t- still smoke? A lawsuit People can mitigate the damages. They don't drink at the same levels they used to. They don't smoke and drink at the same levels they used to. And in fact, there's a sober movement among the younger generation because they know better and they're going to do better. Well, so I do think it helps. Yeah, the, the answer to what will big lawsuits and big money help? I mean, think about what happened with prescription painkillers. There were changes as a result of all those massive lawsuits. Sadly, we're still so many with- people got addicted, or you yeah. know, so many people died. And yes, it's still a problem. But uh, when you have companies that admit they know mm-hmm. that what they're doing is causing people to be addicted to their product, and yet they're going to continue to well, do it. Well, they'll say it's the misuse of their product. Facebook, didn't then they come back and said, we, we provide 30 tools, 30 different tools yes. to help prevent this. Do we know what those tools are? Uh, they, uh, well, I know some. No. On Instagram, I've actually had to, put, Ursula doesn't <laughs> I've had to put some of those into effect because I like Instagram. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter anymore, but I do like Instagram, and they do have little reminders that pop up like, hey, you've been on for 20 minutes straight now. You want to take a break? Oh, yeah. that's what it is. And TikTok yeah. does that, too. Yeah, and yeah. Well, I get also, that too on my iPhone. It's yes. time to take a break. It's yes. time to go to sleep. So yes. there's personal responsibility, but there's also the admission that you are knowingly putting a product out there that harms the mental health of kids. And that's a big accusation. And I'm not saying that parents don't have a role in this. Sure. And then also, you know, young young kids, you know, uh, with our sons, um, there was a point in time where my oldest son said, you know what, I just, I can't do it. I, I, I'm just taking myself off of social media. He mm-hmm. says, because it's just depressing. Mm-hmm. He said, it's not good for my uh, mental health. So he limited himself to, he uses LinkedIn and he uses uh, Snapchat mm-hmm. sure. on, on occasion. And life but went the on? other stuff, life went on. Okay. He's 
you know, been very successful. Same with my younger son. But I know that that's not something that that most kids would do. And I think it's I want to say it's especially been shown to be harmful for young girls. And I'm just curious, Colleen, as the mom of two girls, Mm -hmm. like, have you decided how you're going to handle your your older daughter is getting to that age where she might I have to take it. I have to take it instance by instance. But what I do is I just have an open dialogue with her, and I use myself as an example. I say, you know, when you get frustrated when I'm on my phone, but you want my attention, you know, that's a sign of addiction to phone, and this can happen to you too. There are studies that, you know, fortunately I'm in the news, so I know there are studies about depression. So she's ten; she can handle talk about this may depress you, this may make you sad. So we just talk honestly about it. Is she on social media? No, no, no. Yeah, not at ten years old. (laughs) Oh, there are some who are. He's trying to. Cut us off or so on, yeah, but we can just is. keep talking. The strike vote by nurses at Providence Medical Center in Everett has raised again this whole issue of healthcare worker burnout. And uh, we'll be talking with CBS's Alexander Tint about whether nurses around the nation are feeling uh, the way the nurses at uh, uh, Providence are. But first, we get an update on some of the legal woes that are facing former President Donald Trump. Two big trials making headlines. One involves a civil suit in New York. The other, the suit in Georgia about the attempt to overthrow the 2020 election results there. CBS's Robert Costa is reporting on both of those cases. And I called him earlier this morning to give us the update. Former President Donald Trump right now is facing legal challenges that seem to be mounting by the day. I sat behind Trump. In court yesterday here in New York City as he faces his ongoing civil trial about alleged fraud committed by him and the Trump organization, Michael Cohen, his former lawyer and fixer, now a key witness in that case. Meanwhile, down in Georgia, Jenna Ellis, his former lawyer during that post-2020 election period, has accepted a plea deal. Now the third Trump-associated lawyer in the Georgia case to accept a plea deal in that racketeering case about Trump's conduct. And what are they? I saw what Michael Cohen said. He said that uh, I did whatever Trump ordered me to do when it came to property assessments. What, what are the others admitting to here? They are acknowledging in their statements in court in Georgia that they participated in a criminal conspiracy. They've accepted probation offers to uh, not go to jail, to not go to Fulton County Prison. But they are acknowledging publicly that they participated in a criminal scheme to overturn the 2020 election results. And are they basically saying they they made it all up? Did they explain their actions and why they feel differently now? They say that, generally speaking, they use baseless claims about fraud to forward a, a scheme to keep Trump in power, all while pressuring elected officials, election officials, and state Republicans to buy into this scheme so that Trump could put forward what are called alternate electors in Georgia and elsewhere uh, that are different than the electors that are a part of the, the formal electoral college. And they wanted to create a whole network of alternate electors so Trump could claim that he actually won the election because of these so-called alternate electors. At the end of the day, uh, these lawyers are, are saying that what they did was wrong. Mm-hmm. They're willing to go on the record with that under oath in court. And so they have all agreed to testify against Trump or testify to their own guilt or how far are they willing to go? I guess is the question. Well, I mean, I wouldn't use the phrase against Trump. I mean, they will testify about Trump. Mm -hmm. Uh, Trump may see it differently, but this is, they have an obligation now to be witnesses who testify truthfully in court 
about everything they know. We're hearing from CBS's Robert Costa, who's covered Donald Trump for a long time, wrote a book about it, in fact. And so I, I asked him, is there any part of the, uh, the MAGA movement which is somehow influenced by all the evidence coming out against uh, their hero, essentially? Is any of this going to affect the support that he uh, still enjoys from his, his base? It doesn't seem to be affecting Trump's standing in the Republican presidential race. His rivals are still struggling to get out of the single digits in most polls, uh, though they're, some of them are doing better in the early voting states. And Trump has used these legal challenges to fuel grievances among his own supporters that he's somehow under siege as he faces five ongoing trials. You have two in the special counsel at the federal level, one in Georgia, a civil trial in New York, and a criminal trial in New York about those so-called hush money payments to porn star Stormy Daniels. Trump is someone who has faced legal challenges his whole career. So for him, being in court, um, kind of facing off against prosecutors, it's almost the normal state of being. Most politicians, when they face this level of scandal and litigation, it becomes something that they just can't escape as a, a, something shackled onto their reputation. But for Trump, it's almost baked in that he's always going to be fighting. So for that reason, you don't see a lot of Republican voters saying, oh, this is too much. I don't know how, how, how far you've delved into their thinking there, but uh, are, are they simply saying are, are they actually saying that Trump, in fact, did tell the truth and that it's the prosecution charges that are being fabricated here? Well, when I travel around the country for CBS News, I encounter voters who still maintain that Trump won the 2020 election. And this is a false claim, but they maintain that they're correct and that Trump is correct that he won because they believe that fraud took place. And so many of them buy into these ideas and claims that were put forward by people like Sidney Powell, like Jenna Ellis, like Ken Chesborough, all three lawyers who have now taken plea deals in a criminal racketeering case in Georgia, that they are acknowledging wrongdoing. But even as they acknowledge that, the claims they made years ago continue to echo through the American political system. Mm. So the big lie works. Doesn't matter if there's well, uh, ample well, proof that uh... it works. I, I, it doesn't, I'm not saying it works. I mean, it persists in some quarters. President Biden is president of the United States. The, the big lie did not keep Biden out of the White House, even with a Capitol attack trying to block his certification. So the, it's a fair point to say that the big lie or the claim that Trump falsely won the election in 2020, it lingers, uh, not necessarily succeeds, but it lingers. What's your prediction now? Are, are there going to be convictions in these cases? I don't want to predict, but I mean, Plea deals are definitely a step forward. If you're a prosecutor and you start getting some of the key witnesses to take plea deals before a trial even begins because they don't want to go to Fulton County Prison or take that risk, then you're going to have quite a slate of witnesses to present to a jury and say, we, we're going to take you inside the room, show you the documents. This won't just be hearsay. This will, people, will be a group of people who work directly with Trump on different aspects of his efforts to stay in power. And so you'll have a, a spectrum of testimony that will per likely provide a vivid portrait of what went down. And for that case, it could present Trump with real legal peril. CBS's Robert Gostin. Robert, thank you. Thank you. And it's Mickey time. Good morning, Mickey. Good morning. Mickey Gomez is here. And uh, we've been hearing about this CDC report into healthcare worker burnout, mm -hmm. which is uh, apparently going to 
cost the healthcare system even more money. And uh, we did have a strike vote by nurses at Providence and Everett, unless they get a contract uh, in about a week or so. Mm-hmm. You talked to one of the nurses up there. So what can you what what's the what's the problem? Well, Kristen Crowder is a labor and delivery nurse, and she's also a local union member. And she says over the last 18 months, 600 nurses left Providence Hospital. Yeah, 600 over 600. 600 yes. 600 nurses left Providence Hospital. And we know this happened because of the pandemic, but are there other reasons? Absolutely. She says low pay, patient-to-staff ratio are the reasons she voted to strike. We don't have the staff. We don't have the ability to retain nurses, and we don't have the ability to recruit nurses to come work at Providence. Yeah. She says bargaining continues November 3rd, and if the union can't strike a deal, nurses are going to walk. They have voted to walk. No. On November 3rd. On November 3rd. If the union cannot strike a deal with Providence, yes, they say that they will walk. Okay. Now, mm-hmm. is Providence unique, or is it your sense that this is going on? Providence everywhere? is not unique. Kaiser nurses here in Washington also voted to strike, and I'm still trying to get a hold of their representatives and their union members and the hospital. Um, it's taking a minute. I know they've got a lot going on right now. Uh, Crowder says the hospital had you know, staffing issues before COVID hit. COVID happened and the mental and physical demands that were required during COVID really played a very hard role. She says nurses are exhausted and there aren't enough resources like staff support. She does admit that Providence is willing to work with nurses. However, not at the level at which the union nurses are requesting and asking and they would know best what did she say about patient care there i mean should we be worried about getting care well that's one of the big reasons why a lot of these nurses voted to strike is because of patient care crowder says they need safe staffing for example for every eight patients she says there's only one nurse and she says the emergency room has it worse Ooh. That's not a great place to have it worse. And we did just have that case out of Providence Everett, too. A family is Mm -hmm. suing because a a woman who was waiting in the ER ended up dying. It was uh, acute pancreatitis, right? Something that you shouldn't die from these days. Right. Um, Does that play into it as well for these nurses, the, the lack of action there? It does. I mean, because, you know, you've only got so much staff working in the ED and they can only take the most acute patients back first. Mm. And then when, you know... One of the things that uh, Crowder said was that people don't go to the hospital for minor issues anymore. That That's what she's seeing. That's what the nurses are seeing. When they go to the hospital, when, when someone is really sick, really sick, that's when they're going to the hospital. Oh, that's interesting. I've heard before in the past, I've mm-hmm. heard that, you know, people are clogging up the emergency rooms with these things that should be taking right. care of. Oh, clinics, I've got a cough or I have yeah. a sore throat. Or, so you're saying it's right. So worse. she's saying that it's getting worse. Mm-hmm. And when people do go to the hospital, it's for acute reasons. Well, how is a strike going to help? That's going to make it even worse. And when, and when nurses decide to leave uh, a hospital, where do they go? Do well, they just change careers or they go to a, one of these new urgent care centers? Where do they go? So when the nurses do vote to st- well, they've already voted to strike. So yeah. if they can't come up with a deal, they have to give the hospital 10 days notice that, hey, we're walking off. And that gives the hospital 10 days to find nurses, uh, travel nurses to get them in. And then... 
and then they strike. But, but travel nurses the, are paid so much. I mean, that's going to end up causing uh, costing so much more. They do. They they do make a lot of money. What what Crowder tells me is that a lot of these nurses are leaving, going to higher paid jobs. Or maybe they're leaving the industry altogether. She doesn't know where everyone is going. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the nurses are leaving for better pay. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe some of them, um, I know that uh, some leave and become travel nurses because they make more money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they don't have to deal with the headaches, you know? It's, kind it's of like hard a to look at a medical stint. bill these days and, th- and think that the health care business is starved for money, though. Right. 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 Well, Providence's uh, chief nurse nursing officer, Michelle Lundstrom, is going to speak with us today to share their side of the story. Yeah. And this whole time, usually from hospitals, all we hear is... We value our nurses and staff, and we're committed to iron. You know, we get right, the same right, right, statement right. from yeah. every, and, and that's all they said. And that's what Providence okay. said yesterday. We, yeah. we value our nurses, and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna meet them at the table on November third. Mickey Gomez, thank you, Mickey. You're welcome. I'm Dave Ross, and I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM, or subscribe to this podcast, and you'll never miss the show.